0: The Read More, Read Well podcast, your help and encouragement on your reading journey.
1: Welcome to the Read More, Read Well podcast. In today's closer look episode, we're going back to an interview from 2018 between Marcy and Marianne Wolf on how reading has changed since the advent of digital reading and how our brains have changed with it. The discussion may be a few years old, but the topic is just as crucial now as it was then. Marianne Wolf is a scholar, a teacher, and an advocate for children and literacy around the world. She is the director of the newly created Center for Dyslexia, Diverse Learners, and Social Justice at the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies. She's the author of Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World, and several other books on reading. We hope you enjoyed this free presentation of Deep Reading in a Digital World.
2: Hi, this is Marcy Stockman, and welcome to our podcast for Well Read Mom. And today we have with us Dr. Mary Ann Wolf. And if those of you who have heard me speak in the past, you know that I almost always quote something by Dr. Wolf in, in my audios because I admire her so much in the research she's doing and has done on reading. Welcome, Dr. Wolf.
1: It's a pleasure,
2: Marcy.
0: It's very much uh, an honor to be with other well-read
2: mothers. (laughs) Well, we're we're working on it. I have several copies of your new book, Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World. It's all marked up. It's underlined. I'm going to give these out. We're going to encourage our listeners uh, to buy this book and read it and pass it out because we're at a pivotal time in our culture.
0: Can you speak more about this pivotal change we're undergoing right now? Right. Well, Marcy, there have been various big transitions in our culture between an oral language and a literacy culture. And then we have Gutenberg. um, And then we have what is right now a different form of that that great transition. And it's a transition between written language, literacy, if you will, and a digital culture. So what we are, I think, in this moment of time, in what I call a hinge moment, where unlike other transitions, where we had no technical knowledge of the ways that a different form of communication would change our cognitive, linguistic, and affective processes, now we have science and we have technology. So we have two completely different advantages from other transitions and one of the the joys of my work is to be able to understand what those changes are at a cognitive level linguistic level and affective level and though this is not where the research is this is where my intentions or my sense of obligations why and that is are there changes actually in how we think ethically and morally because of these other changes so it's all of a piece I want science and education to help us understand what are the changes and I want technology and education to understand how we can teach the next generation. So and this is very much at the heart of things so that what I call deep reading can be developed in our children regardless of medium and that it can be preserved in ourselves regardless of medium. Now of course there's that's the tip of an iceberg and I know your questions are going to take me underneath that tip, but at the top of it is the goal of true critical analysis, uh, developed empathy and perspective taking, and a foundation for new knowledge that regardless of medium, that our children and ourselves will be part of.
2: Dr. Wolf, are you are you saying that the ability to deep read is accesses an area of the brain that allows us to access empathy and new thoughts and how to retrieve our past knowledge you're saying we've got this access to get into deep reading when we become yes. and, and deep reader right And you're afraid we could lose that
0: access yes it's more that It could atrophy or it could be failing to develop. So in the young, I'm worried that these very important processes might fail to develop. And in people like ourselves, I worry that the complete domination of one medium, which is digital, will bleed over its mode of reading into all forms of reading, thus atrophying the circuit. But Marcy, I think what we should do is back up conceptually a few steps to understand what deep reading is and how it actually is the essence of multiple processes that become connected to a reading circuit. So I'm going to back up just a little bit and talk about what a circuit is For your readers, for your listeners and readers, we hope both. (laughs) When the processes that we develop as a culture are not natural, like math and like literacy, the brain has one of its most interesting capacities put to use. And that's its ability to form a new circuit out of its older parts, the parts that do have. A genetic program. There is no genetic program. And I know, Marcia, you read my first book, Proust and the Squid, The Story and Science of the Reading Brain. And the first line of that book was, We were never born to read. That little tiny insight has been my boon companion for years. Because if it's not natural, it means that it is capable of being changed with ramifications. Well, the brain makes a new circuit for this new function that doesn't have a genetic program. And in the process, we make new connections between visual areas and language areas and cognitive areas and affective areas. Now, in the beginning, it's this very I don't want to say primitive because even at its lowest level, it's, it's pretty sophisticated to combine new networks of language and cognition. So even at its most basic level, that decoding circuit takes a lot, but it becomes the foundation for adding over time with everything we read, new information to that circuit requiring ever more elaborated networks being added so reading not only is a basic circuit that adds to itself it learns with every new experience it has it becomes ever more elaborated with processes that begin if you will with connecting what we know that's our background knowledge with that text in front of us so the first act of the deep reading this the beginning of deep reading processes is really that beautiful reciprocal that is connecting making analogies between what we already know what we've already read listened to seen etc with this new information on the page now that becomes what i call uh, a repository of background knowledge it's the basis for all the rest of the deep reading processes. Now, I want to emphasize that basis, because with our children, they will be relying, if not over-relying, on external sources of knowledge, not just their own. And I want to be sure that our children are constantly building their own. Otherwise, if they uh, perceive something on the page, they might not know what they don't know, <laughs> so they don't look into an external. So there's this delicate balance, I believe, not delicate, a sturdy balance between building background knowledge and learning when to go and use external servers. Well, that's the beginning. The, the time that our children are developing those background knowledge um, repositories, that becomes the basis for them learning to make inferences from it. So I know this, I see this, ah, I can infer this piece of information, this concept, as a result of that blending of two forms of knowledge. From inference or with inference comes what I call the scientific method processes in deep reading, inference, deduction, induction. All those are like our, if you will, our Sherlock Holmes. I call them our Sherlock Holmes processes to be only slightly facetious because we need to be aware that all of those details that Sherlock Holmes used to come to an an analysis of conclusion, what he calls a deduction, that's important in reading. That's important for our children to learn. As you know, Marcy, and most of your listeners won't, I don't believe our brain is just a Sherlock Holmes. I believe it's Miss Marple <laughs> because we use not just our cognitive conceptual processes to make inferences, but our affective ones. And affect, if you will, begins with the ability to take on the perspective of another viewpoint. It could be of another person, another time, another epoch, but it is taking on an alternative perspective to our own. This is the basis of empathy. This empathy is not just feeling. This is where I use Miss Markle. She used feeling as a way of understanding motivation. What in cognitive science we call theory of mind. We use our emotions, our ability to take on perspective, our ability to have empathy as a way of also understanding how another person thinks, well, all of that becomes the great basis, not linearly. And that's a tough one to, to grapple with. The brain doesn't work just, da, da, da. it's this, if you will, like a wheel of spokes of information that come together. Well, all of these, the inferences, the deductions, the empathic understanding, the perspective taking and theory of mind. They come together to help form critical analysis
2: that is informed
0: by empathy.
2: Now you can have critical
0: analysis without empathy or with it. My great preference for our species is that the reading brain is, I, I use this term, is both science and poetry. It is both affect and concept. And that becomes, I think of as the heart of the reading process that can itself lead to new personal insights by the reader not always but critical analysis and empathy are an extraordinary combination that can when we're very fortunate and when we have the contemplative mode that reflective mode that allows it to to gain real deep insights so the entirety of what i just said marcy is what I think of as the collection, the more obvious and prominent of the deep reading processes. There are others, but these are the the great six deep reading processes. And
2: these deep reading processes need to have, when, when we have this, we have the background knowledge base to have empathy and use affect the way you were talking about but does can that background knowledge be built through digital technology or is it only through the reading of books that this
0: reading circuit is formed very important question what i am suggesting is that we can use multiple sources for background knowledge this and this is your question is so important because um, various people if you will pardon the pun, misread me into thinking that I'm making a binary argument that it's print versus digital. The beauty of our moment in time is that we can begin to understand what are the best uses of both mediums for the access and retrieval of knowledge and for the building of knowledge. But what I want to insist is that in our young it's necessary for them to be building that background knowledge in various important ways and never just relying on the idea that knowledge is accessible by their fingertips instead of something to be learned so on the one hand i want to be sure to say that there are many things that inform our background knowledge And at the same time, I want to say that reading provides a particular use and formation of background knowledge. So I do not want to exclude digital. That would be foolhardy. But I also don't want to underestimate how important it is that we build background knowledge and we build its use through the reading process of print. So you want us to maintain... A biliterate brain.
2: Yes. Digital yes. and print from books. Do yes. you read some books every day? Absolutely. <laughs> do, you, do you underline and do you know where to find things? What is it about the physicality of books?
0: Okay, the physicality is a, is a beautifully, uh, uh, if you will, complex set of dimensions that not just people in neuroscience are looking at, but also people in literature. Um, there are those who suggest that when we read kinesthetically, when we have that tactile dimension, we are actually adding to the geometry of words, that the, the word itself has more heft, has more substance within us. If you think about what we do when we read on the screen, there is a natural, effervescent, almost transient, transitory aspect to reading on a screen. Um, it's here today and gone in a second. Whereas the print gives us, and there's a, a beautiful uh, cognitive term, the benefit of recurrence, recurrence means that we can go back and check ourselves, which is, especially in the developing periods of reading, so important for comprehension monitoring. We go back, we know what we didn't understand, or we are confused it is very simple to go backwards and to check ourselves, to monitor ourselves on a tactile medium. You certainly can go back on a screen, but it is not advantageous to do so, and it's more difficult. So it it in fact makes us more likely simply to go forward, 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 not monitor. And most important for my um, if you will, my perspective on print, it doesn't encourage the allocation of time to the slower deep reading processes. So physicality is only one piece of the story of the differences between digital and print, but it is it is one aspect. But perhaps the most important is that the digital medium is advantaging. The ability, and it is this, is, this is an advantage and disadvantage, the ability for us to process voluminous information. We're bombarded by about 50 to 100,000 words a day. We can't, we can't deal with that. One of the things we do is to deal with it. We skim, we can triage, we can go to familiar sources, which we can talk about later, but by and large, we skim and skimming is not advantaging giving or allocating time to the slow deep reading processes. So the digital medium advantages voluminous information processing, fast processing of it, multitasking, but all of these take away from the time to to give to the deeper reading processes. So we have advantages and disadvantages. There's no question that many people skim, believing, (laughs) really believing that they will then read deeply when they find what is important to read. The problem is that we develop this set to go ever forward, or we have this uh, continuous, what's sometimes called continuous partial attention, and we're just not giving enough attention. We think we will be reading something more deeply. But in essence, we don't. So I often encourage, um, in terms of adults, that when we read, we we read with purpose. What is the purpose of whatever we're reading? Some things are best (laughs) to skim and do digitally. And, you know, most of our email is, is in that category. But occasionally, even in email, we really need to read with our most reflective and um, critical cells, And that requires, I believe, learning how to do that. And from our, from my standpoint, printing it out may be the simplest way to do that for adults, but learning with print first, and we can go into deeper conversation if you wish on that, learning to read it with print first may be the best way to develop deep reading processes in our young long-winded answer marcy no no that's what we want we want you speaking
2: uh, sometimes people feel something's too long and they don't read it. it we don't have as much patience uh this summer we read Les Miserables by Victor Hugo and reading is more difficult today sometimes it's it's harder to focus i see that's... that in myself Yes. I have to go into like you're saying, an intentional
0: mindset to slow down with this, to relax. It's to a perfect word for it. Receive. Word. Yeah, that's an absolute perfect word. I will borrow it from now. <laughs> Marcy. Intentional mindset is very good. I've been lamely saying purposeful. No, intentional mindset is exactly right. Here's the reality that almost all of us imperceptibly have changed. And whether it's Victor Hugo or, God forbid, George Eliot and Jane Austen, readers, as you know, are, are books, as you know, that I uh, cherished. I, I I recall that story in, in letter four in my book, in which I went back to Herman Hesse's uh, timeless book, Magister Ludi, Glass Game, and couldn't read it. I was just horrified at how. Dense it was how syntactically cumbersome. Uh, I have said several places in NPR interviews that I couldn't believe he got a Nobel Prize for literature for this book, or at least, but that was me being in a way cognitively impatient. And that's what you're referring to. I believe we all have a, a degree of cognitive impatience that's growing ever more. And it leads us to be less able, less willing, and less able to tackle the syntactically denser forms of reading, which leads to many a literature professor writing me or writing essays or talking with not nostalgia and regret, but with great angst and worry for their students who don't want to read 19th century literature, who do not want to read Henry James or William James, or heavenly days, the 120 to 250 word sentences of Proust. They don't have the patience. They say they don't have time. It's a cognitive time that they're unaware of. Time in milliseconds are required to enter the immersive aspect of reading. Your experience of Victor Hugo, my experience, not of Sid Harta, which is very easy to read, but of Glass Bead Game by Herman Hesse, just shone a light on my own changes. Now, as you know, but I will tell you listeners, there's a happy ending from that story because by the end of the first day, I thrust the book back in discussed more at Hermann Hesse than myself, by the way. And then I sat down and just realized I was thrusting back into the shelf. A friend. Hermann Hesse, this book was a friend. Books are friends to me. And that's, that's something also that the screen does not allow. In the same way, a book's very physicality lends itself to if you will, relationship, and Herman Hesse had been my friend for all those years, and it was as if I was losing not just my ability to read a dense, syntactically rich but difficult text, but I was losing a relationship to a form of reading, to a, to messages, to a style by someone I once admired very much. So I went back, and I forced myself to read 20 minutes a day. That's it. I read 20 minutes a day for almost up to two weeks. And by the end of that time, Marcy, I came back. And that's part of where the, the, the book title, I felt like I was coming home. And by this point, I was really finally not superimposing my digitally bred. Be quick about it. Reading style and was reading at the rhythm that the author had himself written. So I was reading as it had been written, not as I had been reading. And you and I probably similarly read between six and 12. Yesterday, I was on the screen 15 hours. I must have been on the screen 15 hours. And Marcy, do you know what I did? This is maybe for all of your mothers. I was so over screened that I went into my son, girlfriend's study. I said, give me a book. <laughs> I needed a book. I needed to hold the book. I needed to enter the book. I needed to slow myself down and appreciate the language. This is one of the things that go missing our apperception of the beauty of writing, the beauty of the author's ever so carefully chosen words. I'm not saying that every author does that, but many work as hard as can be to choose those words, those sentences, those even those phrasings that best reflect the complexity or simplicity of their thoughts and their attempt to make written language a thing of beauty. Well, that's more or less what Italo Calvino said in his uh, six essays for the next millennium. A beautiful book, by the way. But anyway, all this is to say, we are all losing the cognitive patience that goes hand in hand with our best immersive, reflective reading self. And It also leads us to go further and further away, not just from immersion, but from an even deeper place, which I call the contemplative mode, the contemplative reader. So all of those things are very important for us to think about, to examine ourselves.
2: When I hear you talk, I think, okay, you're the reading expert, a leading reading expert researcher in the country, and you have to be so intentional. I do about I do, And you, you said you had to force yourself to go back and read 20 minutes a day. And you're, and I hear you saying it's worth it. It, we,
0: it, it is a very, that's a very good way of phrasing it, Marcy. The contemplative is an, is a sanctuary inside us. It's a holding ground for combining our best thoughts and feelings. And reading in the contemplative mode can give us a more sure access into that holding ground, that holding place, that sanctuary. The last letter in my book, if if your listeners would like to read any one piece of the book and they have no time for anything else, the last letter is about the utmost importance of the contemplative part of the reading self for the preservation of a more humane democratic society where all the voices can be heard, respected, and appreciated regardless of viewpoint. So that that contemplative becomes, if you will, a new foundation for critical analysis and empathy that can bear fruit in our society and lead us to be less susceptible, less vulnerable to fake false news from rabid radio programs or from demagoguery in all its various new guises. All right, thank you so much, Dr. Dr. Wolf. Thank you, really Bye.
2: appreciate it. Thank Bye. you, Bye. bye-bye.
1: What you heard today. For more information about Well-Read Mom and joining a group near you, visit our website at
0: wellreadmom.com. Well-Read Mom groups are forming now. We make it easy to grow in friendship by sharing great books and literature.